Okay, ready to go, ready to take off or ready to fly. Okay, I think it's time to start. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crazy Bird Podcast. I'm your host, Violeta Kaminska, and I'm here with my excellent, wonderful co-host, Matt Van Rijs. Hello, Matt. How are you? Hello, I am doing well. Well, today we are very excited to welcome our very special guest, Rob Walker. Hi, Rob. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Thank you. So let me introduce, well, you probably don't need much of introduction, but I will tell our listeners a little bit of you and some wonderful things you are involved in. But there is so much that I will just touch upon that and then we'll jump into uh, our chat. So Rob Walker is a journalist with a variety of side projects. He's covering design, technology, business, the arts, and other subjects. He has contributed to the New York Times, Bloomberg, Business Week, The Atlantic, NewYorker.com, Design Observer, The Organist, and many others. He wrote the Workologist column for The New York Times and the Consumed column for The New York Times Magazine. He's on the faculty of the Products of Design MFA program at the School of Visual Arts. His latest book is The Art of Noticing, 131 Ways to Spark Creativity, Find Inspiration, and Discover Joy in the Everyday. And the book inspired the newsletter that I subscribe to. Okay, I'm out of breath. It's a great pleasure to have you here. There's so much more I could talk about. There are so many more projects you are involved in I could uh, introduce here, but I think the best thing is to talk to you and hear from you. Okay. <laughs> well, I do want to mention, if you don't mind, the, the one thing that on the, on the list, I know it's a long list, but I'm working as a senior writer these days for a publication called Marker by Medium. Oh, okay. New business publication, and they uh, pay my rent. So um, I want to give them full credit because I enjoy working for them and, um, <laughs> and I appreciate them very much. And we will ask you a little bit later to share with us and our listeners all the platforms that we can find your writing and all other projects that our listeners can find and enjoy reading well, and being in I am very excited to be here. So uh, don't let my self-promotion get in the way of um, conversation. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we, we actually, we want to promote uh, creative and wonderful people. So I have a question for you, Rob. I have lots of questions for you, but you know, I'll try to curb my enthusiasm. The Art of Noticing. Could you please tell us a little bit about that project, the book, and... Why did you start it and how did you start it and when did you start it? Sure. Um, it's, uh, there's a sort of long version of this and a short version because it, um, I, I was sort of working on it for a long time before it took concrete shape. Like I was interested in this subject. The book is about um, the, it, it, it started out as being more focused on the idea of attention and um the truth is that the original idea, uh, which was sort of nebulous, was was about what I call this attention panic that everyone like I don't even have to explain this. We all know that like everyone feels like they're under assault. Their attention is under assault. Everyone's trying to steal your attention. Um, this has been true for a long time through mass media ways. But now it's even more true because of these phones that we carry around and this like 24 hours a day, whether it's a company or whether it's a friend or whether it's a social media entity, someone's trying to get you to look in a certain direction for their benefit, not yours. Right. And I find that troubling as a writer, as a creator or whatever, like the, no creativity, no originality comes from looking where you're supposed to look. It always comes from looking at where you're not supposed to look. 
right? So I had this kind of, I was thinking about this for years, like five years ago or more. Um, and I guess in the original version of the project, it was a sort of a 300 page book that was 290 pages of the problem and 10 pages of like, here's some stuff you can do to help, to help you fight back as it were. And I sort of spent uh, several years not doing any work on that at all. Um, and I finally realized it was because I was really only interested in the last 10 pages about what are the things you can do. And that became the art of noticing, which is this a series of 131 small, my editors don't let me use the word assignment. Um, so they're <laughs> prompts or games or provocations of yeah. just uh, how to jolt yourself out of looking at what other people want you to look at, how to use all your senses, how to connect with other people, and just how to sort of notice and pay attention to what you pay attention to what you think is important, and um, and, and and notice what matters to you. So that was the project, and then that evolved into the newsletter as well. But the book, um, it sort of was the centerpiece. I did. There was an interim thing where I did a short piece on it and then I did some talks about it and stuff like that, but that's sort of more process stuff. That's the big picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just think it's really interesting how you talked about the idea of the process for it actually re required a little bit of stepping back before kind of coming back to the part that was actually the, I guess the part that was really exciting you. And it took some distance to, it's almost like you had to go notice some other things before you noticed the part that was really, you know, poignant to you too. Yeah, I think that's a very generous way of putting it. I think <laughs> um, I think I was lazy for some years. No, I think I, it did just it. I'm slow sometimes, and it took me a while to figure out like what is and I, I, I and I feel good about the way that, that worked out because I think other people ended up writing books about the problem, and there's nothing wrong with writing about the problem. It just wasn't. It wasn't. It clearly. It's like one of these things where the book ends on the idea of, of learning to sort of listen to yourself, and um, the book is kind of an example of this where it just like. I, 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 it took me a while to turn this corner to figure out what is the piece of this that I'm really engaged with um, and yeah. that I'm really excited about. You mentioned that people write about the problem and I'm a media artist and I am um, I really feel connected to what you write about and the subject matter because my work is about, as I call it, slowing down and I'm really far from being a slow person. So um, it's probably my desire to slow down and that's why I'm creating this work. I walk a lot and then I kind of slow, you know, slow down as I walk and I observe the environment. But in the beginning, when I started doing it, I noticed that I was talking so much about the problem. And then I realized that, well, the, the problem is there and just talking about it yeah. doesn't do anything. It, it, it wasn't even fulfilling to me anymore. I, w I just kept talking and talking about it. So then what I started doing, I started creating work and actually there was a bigger response some audience who could connect with that because they didn't need to hear from me that there's a problem everybody knows there's a problem or right. you know it doesn't do anything to people and it almost sounded like i was preaching and that wasn't my intent but it sounded like i was telling people you have a problem but i have a problem <laughs> right so you know and i realized it wasn't really about for me at least so it was about showing different ways how i can engage with the environment how i can slow down without really preaching much about much about it and that's when I came across the art of noticing, you know, when I um, when I finally got uh, got to your book, what I really also found inspiring about the work was that you took it a step further. The book inspired the newsletter, and then the newsletter 
You know, it, it's so complex. You don't just write about something. There is one post and suddenly I find all those resources and you share so much. And suddenly through you, I get to meet, not in person, mostly virtually or reading work of other people. I, suddenly I found this platform when I can connect and find other resources. And I realized that there's so much written about it. There are, there are so many, not assignments, games, activities. <laughs> um, and actually, you know, I, I was just telling Matt today that I did that color vision test you talked about. Yeah. I was so ex excited about it. By the way, I I'm going to be, I'm very proud. I'm a tiger, not a hawk yet, but I'm a tiger. So, um, but those little activities are so engaging. You know, again, it's not just saying there's a problem, but just like, that people can engage. So it's not just a book you read. It's not just a um, newsletter you subscribe to, you read, you know, you're done reading, you click, you close it. It just takes you all those places and you are actually engaging people. You are, you know, encouraging uh, people to be involved without really, you know, like preaching much about it. So it's like, I wanted to click on it. I'm inspired. Yeah, I think what you said before that like, and this is what I realized is that I was I was spending a lot of time trying to convince people of something that they already knew. And that what there was a hunger for was what can I do about it? And, and a lot of way and then there's there's a couple ways of answering that because one way of answering that is like kind of almost a philosophical argument about how to view the world and so on, which I didn't feel like I was the right writer to do. Um, I think there is a philosophy threaded through the book, but I was more comfortable breaking it into smaller, like, you know, take a color walk or something is a much more, is something I'm much more color, uh, much more comfortable talking about. And then I think that there is a, an audience that has a craving for like, spare me the theory, just give me, just give me something to do. And you're an artist, so a lot of this is second nature to you. But another thing that I try to say a lot is that I feel pretty strongly that noticing and attention and all this can, it is a core piece of creativity, but I also think that you don't have to think of it in those terms. Like you don't have to, you don't have, you can notice, you can notice all the shades of blue in your neighborhood and you don't have to turn that into an Instagram account and then decide how many followers and all that stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's just the act of noticing an engagement with the world has a lot of payoff, um, mm -hmm. both direct and indirect. In, indirect creativity may surface somewhere else. And direct in the sense of just like sort of, it's just, a, it's a more pleasurable way of being in the world. And mm -hmm. I'm a big um, proponent of that which is uh, frankly not for everybody there. I, I get pushback from sort of productivity type people um, all the time that like, like what's, what's the, what's the payoff to these activities? Like, how do you measure? And it's like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that interested in that line of, of thought. I'm interested in a, a more pure form of um, engagement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, you know, after you wrote a book and, you're still very actively engaged in the art of noticing. Has that impacted you and the way you perceive the world and how observant you are? Of course, of course. I mean, uh, probably, I mean, 
the, the honest answer to that is probably like it just amplified or gave me, it's a good question because I think it gave me permission to um, appreciate and amp up a way of engaging with the world that I already practiced. Um, I do like to make games of things. I was thinking about the, uh, the, because of the issue of the newsletter that I'm working on now is sort of around this idea of everyday games or whatever. I was thinking about, um, you know, I haven't been in an airport lately for obvious reasons, but I was thinking about, um, being stuck in the long line at the airport and instead of being upset about it saying like oh here's a great moment i'm just going to study the t-shirts and just you know i'm just sort of fascinated by like i i i've brought this example up in other but at one time i was at the and there was a guy in a, in a t-shirt that said old school and it's just like <laughs> Where, what is the whole story of like who made that t-shirt who designed it where does it get sold who decides to buy it and like by the time and i just i'm the kind of person who gets lost in that and like i'm standing there kind of giggling in the line at the airport so anyway to answer your question it gave me permission to say like okay it's not just this idiosyncratic way of being in the world it actually has some value I mean, it is what helps me be a journalist. You can't be a journalist by writing about, I mean, you can actually, but you can't be a very interesting journalist by just writing about what everybody else is writing about. You've always got to be looking in a direction that no one else is looking. So there's that. And um, I think that's true in the arts. I think it's true. I think it's true in almost any vaguely creative field, even like, or like, coaching or management and things like this, like you need to be the, you, what sets you apart is always going to be noticing the thing that everyone else failed to notice. So that's my rejoinder, by the way, to the productivity experts is like, <laughs> there's no, you may not be able to graph this, but you, you cannot be an original person by just paying attention to what everyone else wants you to pay attention to. I'm not sure if I answered your question, but that's my no, you did. You did. And, you know, there are two things that I thought about when you were talking. Um, one is you said, you know, I'm an artist, so it might be a second nature to me easier. And in a way it is. I agree. And I hear from a lot of actually artists and uh, especially young artists that they're really struggling right now, you know, and it's um, talking about creativity of noticing. It's just the stress is taking over it's really hard i hear a lot of complaints and also being an educator that it's just hard to be focused on that creative aspect because there are lots of questions again that would be getting into philosophy why should i be oh how can i focus on on this little thing creative thing when the world is falling apart so it's really yeah. difficult you know so even for artists i think right now especially it, it's difficult but then also you know so i'm in savannah and um Obviously, I'm limited to how far I can go, but luckily I can go for walks. And I discovered an owl, a bored baby owl. And I've been following it, not on Instagram, but, you know, like in the park <laughs> for a few months now. And the baby is really, well, it's not a baby, but I call it the baby. The baby is so used to me, I think, that just shows up when I show up. But I watch it and sometimes I take photos or film it, but I just stand and look up and through that experience, through that little exercise, I would call it, completely, you know, uh, without planning, I've met so many people in times when human interaction is limited or even, you know, when 
I try to stay away, right? Yeah. So suddenly people see me first looking at something and they become curious. So again, me without preaching, oh, you should be observant, you should be looking, you know? I'm not even saying anything. I'm just standing there. People are quite curious about it. It, it seems almost unnatural that somebody is not moving because we are so used to, I feel, to fast pace. Of course, yeah. now the pace is slower. So that is very, I think that's almost like my uh, new area of my art practice where I just stand performance. <laughs> you know, I never thought of this way, but it seems like, you know, I'm just standing <laughs> there and suddenly, you know, I have audience. And I often hear actually, um, it started with friends, but then with people who are interested in my work or who I encounter several times, maybe in the park, that people start paying attention. And I didn't even tell people, you know, you should be doing, I, I don't even engage in that. I hear very often that, you know, because we were talking, I see more birds. I didn't even know that there are birds here. So that's what I often hear. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a good example. One of the prompts in the book is, um, this would be an exotic example of it, but it's not It's not far off. That One of the prompts in the book is, is uh, uh, make it art, meaning just declare, like if you, and this came from once my wife and I were at uh, seeing a show at a gallery and we want, or in a museum and we went into one gallery and there's just like big wooden boxes and it wasn't clear, like, is that a piece? Or is it like something that needs to be unpacked and then it will be a piece? And then it's like, and you're so like, we were looking around for like, well, is there a tag on the wall? Because then it's, <laughs> uh -huh. But then we just decided like, no, it's a piece. It's a piece. We decide like, it's up to us. And then we became a game, you know, again, a silly game of just like seeing things on the street and being like, that's art. Um, and uh, art is everywhere. If you say so, this became the sort of mantra. You know, again, it's going back to your newsletter. You had this exercise when people were sharing, taking photos around their house, right? Like around their houses, during, stuck in front. And I remember seeing a photo, a couple of photos of somebody photographing their dish rack. And yeah. asked even, so I wonder if this is art. And that was your response. Of course, this is art. Yeah, of course. Yeah, obviously. I love stuff like that. And, you know, that those are kindred spirits who, I mean, that's just... You know, I'm not saying that it's uh, maybe the most important art in the world, <laughs> right. but, um, but there is a sort of uh, poetry and, uh, you know, admirable beauty to find, like noticing, like, well, what are the patterns of like, because there was a dish rack, right? That would right. be stacked in different Yeah, there were dishes, like one day they were, you know, set up differently the other yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like, you know, I mean, especially in these... Obviously, the book predates these weird cloistered times, and the newsletter does too. But um, it became, it has become a focus of the newsletter, is like mm -hmm. sort of highlighting these examples of mm -hmm. um, of paying attention to our spaces and and um, and, and learning to spot interesting things in Zoom calls and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, I noticed when I pay attention to something it automatically slows me down. There are lots of things going through our minds, I feel, especially right now. Yeah. So this is that those moments, like, but it's, it's almost like Zen moments to me, you know, the opportunities of slowing down without me trying to force myself into meditation. And I think sometimes those moments that we take for granted, that we are engaged in every day, they're actually our Zen moments, like meditative moments, even at this track. In the yeah. Kitchen. I mean, I think that there's, um, I talk about this some in the book that like, I think that meditation and mindfulness, people often 
find as concepts intimidating? I mean, it's a little bit difficult to like, if, am I doing it right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm a big, I encourage the pursuit of those practices, but um, I try to position some of these noticing things as gateways to that. And you have identified a perfect example of just just embrace it when it happens. Like I'm engaged with, and even if it's the dish rack, like mm-hmm. if you're engaged in the moment with the dish rack and it's taking you out of like thinking about the election or whatever is, mm-hmm. whatever is banging around inside your brain, distracting you, you know, I embrace that because I feel like that another, another practice in the book is just this unitasking, meaning, you know, everyone talks about mm-hmm. multitasking and how, right. You know, you can't just iron a shirt. You need to be listening to this American life while you're ironing your shirt <laughs> so that you make sure you maximize that. But it's like, no, just iron your shirt and just like be, give yourself permission mm-hmm. to engage in that moment. And my favorite example is someone taught writing about mowing the lawn because that's my absolute least favorite activity like in the world. <laughs> like literally when we made a decision about how, when we were buying a house, it's like, I don't want a lawn. I just, I, <laughs> I, I don't ever want to have to mow along, but like <laughs> people can, if you, if that's your jam, like find the thing that just like, however mundane it is that lets you just engage in that moment. I think there's a lot of value in that. And it is, it is kind of the essence of the Zen, you know, mm-hmm. right. Uh, practice that people are striving for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think yeah. also, you know, we live the times we live in, in general, there's this tendency and pressure to do things, not to stop. So, I sometimes hear people feel guilty, you know, and they call it all spacing out. And of course, you know, there can be space, but they feel like things like that, those moments are a waste of time. And almost there is guilt, you know, that I shouldn't be standing here and staring at a dish rack. Or I shouldn't be, yes, I should be listening to music or a podcast. Why? Which is great. If as long as it's the crazy bird podcast, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm hanging my clothes somewhere, you know, but I should be doing something. It should, this activity is not paying my bills. Right. Activity is not, there's no value in it, seemingly. So I should, I, yeah, there's this, I shouldn't be sitting. Even now I hear sometimes, you know, when I watch movies and it's an interesting movie, I actually respond to my emails. That happens regularly. And right. um, because people feel they need to use that time. There's not enough time and we have to really use it. So, um Yeah. Twice it happened to me. First, when I still lived in San Francisco and I was watching owls at the Golden Gate Park. And I remember I was there for five hours freezing in the fog and in the late afternoon. And I was waiting for that moment because baby owl would always fly off one tree and go to another tree close by. And I I just loved that moment. So I waited five hours for that moment. And one time, every day I would go there for months. One time I was standing there and it was about that moment when it would happen, but I thought, oh, it's not there yet because I got used to, I got fooled. I got used to, you know, the, I thought the baby, I was going to do it exactly at the same time. It always does it. So I reached for my phone. There was really no reason to reach for it. It was just me automatically reaching for my phone and looking at the screen. And during that moment, the owl did its trick. And I thought, wow, that was like the strong, you know, that, that really hit me that moment, that second millisecond, there was nothing on my screen. And this happened three (laughs) days ago in Savannah, same thing. Well, I wasn't there for five hours for two hours and the baby was sitting and just sitting on the branch. And at some point I thought, I'm just going to look again. There's, there was really no reason. There was no emergency, nothing. I just, just a second. And I thought, wow, you know, it just really hit me. 
like what I lost <laughs> in a second. But um, yeah, well, I mean, it's an eternal battle, and like, there's no obviously you can't like obviously the people who are in favor of being productive have a point. Like, you can't just stare into space indefinitely. Uh, right. <laughs> But there's just so much, I feel like there's just so much pressure to maximize efficiency all the time. And especially when it's especially troublesome, and this gets back into diagnosing the problem, but we'll do it for a second. Um, Especially at a moment where like what you're describing is like a perfect example of how it's like, well, I'll just check my phone. You know, like, because that feels like a vaguely productive thing to do just because who knows, maybe there'll be some new information mm-hmm. on my phone, <laughs> which is absurd, right? Like, um, but it feels very, the, that, that, that device is very, and all the, all the um, apps and software in it are designed to feel like you're, you're getting something done. Um, you know, I, uh, like I earlier today was like, oh, I better check Instagram. Like, really? You better check Instagram. I mean, you know, it's kind of entertaining, but um, uh, it's not vital. And it's like, it feels like getting something done. And what I needed to be doing was, you know, work, like actual, I needed to get some stuff, to come, the newsletter, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't need to be checking Instagram. I need to be writing the newsletter. <laughs> um so there's no right answer, but it's it's. I think it's valuable to try to give people permission to stare off into space sometimes and to yeah. decide and they're making the decision between waiting another few minutes for the owl in Savannah mm-hmm. or checking their phone to feel like it's totally fine to keep waiting for the owl in Savannah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's kind of interesting. The um, I think that there's such a value placed on like producing and it's the ambiguity of those staring off into space sessions I guess that's what's hard like it's not quantifiable but I mean both in the newsletter and the book like I think it's there's some you make some pretty clear connections between the value of that time is is long term it's not it's not immediately productive but it's about like your own sort of mental practice so I you know it's, I feel like it's eventually productive as someone who produces things. Eventually, I feel like, you know, right. that, that, that moment is it pays off. It just doesn't pay off in the way that people expect it to. It doesn't necessarily pay off in a linear way, which I think yeah. is, I mean, this is, this gets a little bit outside of the book, but it's still something that is very much a big subject for me, which is how much we get caught up in what we can measure and how deceptive that can be. And this um, this plays into my practice as a writer because I write a lot about business. And so businesses are often guided by not necessarily the information they want, but the information that's available. And so they, um, you know, in, in my business, like one, a metric, as they say, that's highly available is like views, page views, right? Mm-hmm. But what you really want to know is like, well, how much effect did this have on the end reader? When I was writing, I used to write a column consumed in the Times Magazine in a kind of like less internet-y age. And I would occasionally meet people who would say like they had they had torn it out and pinned it to their bulletin board. And I was always fascinated with this place because there's no metric. There's no one measuring that. But that's right. off the charts in terms of like it made me feel like, oh, that's a real connection that this yeah. really hit home with somebody. Which, 
I'm getting a little off topic, but um, but it, it gets at what I think Matt you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's so hard to measure something like that, but yet that clearly had a massive impact on that particular reader. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was also thinking about the, the current times, again, pandemic, and especially the beginnings of COVID-19 and when nobody knew really what was happening and how to deal with the situation yet, and we were suddenly stuck in our homes. There was this actually a big movement that started because people were trying to figure out what to do. And I was part of that movement. I started baking bread. You know, people were trying to do things. So it feels like some sort of activities yeah. that we were trying to in, uh, get involved and actually social media that was intensified because people were connecting and posting photos and it became to some extent, even a positive experience in something that was very stressful and scary and negative. I think this was the last few months was the moment that was quite on a large scale. There was an initiative people would take rather than even just looking for ideas and exercises. I think there was, that's how I saw it. I saw a lot of exercises and we have, for example, on Instagram very often you could, you can see challenges people would do, right? Like for example, typography challenge. Yeah. This became like a challenge. I don't think it started as something that people wanted necessarily to share and take a photo of. It, it became that way, but it was to, to engage, to find something to feel engaged in. Yeah. And I'm quite sure there were many people who were taking up baking and things like that who weren't necessarily sharing it uh, they were just doing oh, definitely it. I mean I think that there was definitely a hunger for for I mean assignments uh, basically uh, just like something to direct people and in the home and then I would also elevate it to um, say the neighborhood the immediate neighborhood because people were suddenly the dog walk, was no longer a onerous chore. It was um, your gasp of freedom uh, and engagement with the world. And I think that people, and I've tried to encourage this in the newsletter of- uh, Is the calendar project? Yeah, the, like, so yeah. So one example is I put out, and there's an update on the one that I'm working on today. Um, I just put out the challenge of just like, of, uh, you know, there's all these services that can produce a calendar. So like just fix anything in your neighborhood or any series of things that would just make 12. I mean, all you have to do is come up mm -hmm. with 12, like whether it's 12 neighborhood landmarks or um, the, I'm going to share and then this one coming out of someone I know did a 12 pictures of water meter covers, you know, like that are kind of <laughs> interestingly beautiful. Um, yeah. But like I'm, I'm in, I, I encourage people to, to come up with things that would seem absurd. Like obviously there would be no reason this isn't like the fireman, the hot mm -hmm. fireman calendar. <laughs> Not like there's no market for this, but it's a it's a marker for you of a, of a time and a place, and it's a different way of like looking at your neighborhood. It was kind of quasi inspired by the I, I I linked about this this project that was in Slate of this guy who documented all the all this stuff about the typography of address numbers on houses and right, right, yeah. <laughs> it's this insane project but you know i gotta say that ever since reading that like i think of that guy um when i'm uh when i'm riding my bike and i see an unusual mm -hmm. address on a um on a house and like that's kind of the goal is to do something that changes the way other people look at the look at an experience yeah
I like to call it psychogeographic mapping when I walk around. For example, I started counting how many street lamps I see. I started counting, you know, like how many birds there are. But after I, you know, read about the calendar project, I actually even thought further. It's always when I read your newsletter, it just takes me further because trying to figure out in my head how I connected myself. In current times, that's perfect. Yes, find photos for, for example, places you went to, you loved, or maybe you would like to go to. And then um, that could be a great calendar you're you know, 2021, right? The dream year. I'm going to those places. <laughs> and I thought it could be like a hopeful calendar. Like it, everybody's yeah. talking about 2020, how terrible of the year it is. So maybe the, the calendar project, I was thinking of doing it to, for myself. And I was thinking that's how I would approach it. Get the photos I have and kind of make it a positive year, the opposite of. So I was supposed to be in Iceland doing my artist residencies. And that didn't happen, obviously, this year. Hopefully it will happen next year. But again, I want that positivity. So yeah. that's the craving right now. Yeah. yeah. I definitely walk around the neighborhood. And I start counting things. And it, it's a fun game. Yeah. it's it's And it's like, um, it's it's almost, um, trying to think of the way to say this that makes it sound, I mean, it's childish. <laughs> I'm not calling you childish. But um, <laughs> it's, okay. like, it's childish in a way that's inspirational. Because people ask frequently when I do stuff around the book, people ask like, well, how can, like, what, does it have advice for kids? Sure. But uh, the real lesson with kids is that they're already really good at making mm-hmm. up games out of any situation of like, don't step on the crack in the sidewalk and things like that. Like they just, they're much, kids are much more intuitively just turning the world into a giant game out of boredom. Mm-hmm. And like the, what the best thing you could do is like get advice from them um, yeah. <laughs> and be inspired by them and try to recapture that sense of looking at the world the way a child would, which counting random things is a perfect example of what, and I do this one of my many, I have many games on, I, I now in the pandemic era, I do a lot of neighborhood bike riding and one of them is cats versus dogs like how many do i see of each like so i come home from a ride and i'll say well 22 to 8 dogs um, <laughs> my wife is thrilled to hear my score. i mean who cares right but it's like right. it gives you the thing is those little tricks they they make you engage with right. the environment around you instead mm-hmm. of just being in your head Mm-hmm. Or, you know, just like, like I said, ruminating about the election or something like that. Like you're, you're looking for cat in the process of looking for cats versus dogs. You're noticing a lot of other things too. Mm-hmm. Um, my most elusive thing that I'm looking for now that I have to mention because of the name of your po- is shadow, the shadows of birds. Mm-hmm. Very interested in shadows of birds. It's like it's, it's harder to find those that you can't just, mm-hmm. you can't just count on seeing a shadow of a bird. It's very, it's beautiful. They're beautiful though. When you notice mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about me being childish, very true, and uh, and children and how they you know always have games. I actually uh, I remember when I was a child, uh, I introduced my mother to that particular game when we would take a public transportation, go on the bus, and I would look at the sky at the clouds and I would always tell my mother what I saw, like what shape, what it was. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the beginning, she really tried hard. She's like, where, how? You know, so I had to point with my finger. And then I remember it was my mother when I was getting older. I was like, well, that game is not much of fun. I remember how my mother was disappointed that I didn't want to participate. And she was always trying to engage me. She's like, look, I see it. And I noticed, you know, for some reason, 
that might sound a bit crazy, but I'm a crazy bird, so who cares? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, moving to Savannah from San Francisco, I noticed the difference um, in the sky. The clouds are very different. Sure. So I, I remember the game. And I often, when I go on my walks, and I do it when I go to Skidway Island very often, because I'm in that peaceful, wild nature zone, I look up and I really see those shapes. And this is this is really a great game to play, too. So yeah, fun. for sure. And like and it's a classic, it is a classic childhood thing of just like, you're, you're taking in the world as it is and finding wonder and excitement there instead of being like, yeah, I've seen the clouds already. What's, right. what's going on on Instagram? Um, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is you know, which is it's natural that we uh -huh. ch change that way, but um, it can be instructive to try to get back to that mindset. Mm -hmm. That's what I think mm -hmm. kids have to teach us. Yeah. So talking about games before we finish, Rob, could you maybe not for children, but for us grown-ups, could you leave our listeners with something to think about and engage in a little game of yours you would recommend? Huh. Okay. Um, well, so we've sort of talked about, I mean, I'm right now in a mode of thinking a lot about neighborhood things. So um, another one that kind of plays off stuff we've talked about that I think is a fun game <laughs> is counting with the numbers that you see. So uh, what that means is when you're out and about, look for a one. Once you found a one, then look for a two. Once you found a two, then look for a three and um, see how it changes your and And I uh, have the parameter of like, you're not allowed to use license plates. Um, mm -hmm. as, uh, like cheating. Yeah, <laughs> because it, it's just, it's just, it's, yeah. Um, and you can also restrict the print depending on your situation. You could restrict it away from addresses and things like that. It depends. But it works whether you are, um, it actually could even work at home to tell you the truth. I mean, there are numbers in any environment. So, and see how high you can get. What happens with me is I usually get to somewhere in the 50s and then I forget where I left off and I just start over. Um, <laughs> I'm going so, to try that today. And then, uh, and then I'll reiterate the uh, bird shadow thing because that's a big, that's a big one yeah. for me right now. And because this is the, the, the Crazy Bird podcast. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So, Rob, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for bringing my inner child back, you know, my childishness. And uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing all your wonderful ideas and all your projects with us and our listeners. Can you please tell us where our listeners can find you? I mean, maybe not physically, but as right. far as your writing. <laughs> right. Um, the easiest thing to do is just robwalker.net. Um, which has links out to the stuff about the book and the newsletter and all that. And then I guess the second easiest thing would be Twitter, where my handle is not Rob Walker, which is, I know is confusing. <laughs> we are always, following you there. People always ask why I chose that. And it was like, well, I didn't take Twitter seriously at the time. And I'm, now I'm stuck with it. So I'm not Rob uh, those are probably the two easiest places, and uh, that can lead you to the medium work and okay. uh, all of that stuff. Those, those, awesome. those, those things will. Yes, I'm following you on those. So Very once cool. again, thank you so much, Rob, and we will be following your work. And I am going to do my bird shadow exercise today and counting numbers. Okay, let me know what happens. Okay, I will. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
The Crazy Bird Podcast is hosted by Violetta Kaminska and Matt Van Rice. Our guest for this episode was Rob Walker. Learn more about Rob's work on his website, robwalker.net. We've included links in our show notes. Our theme music was written and performed by Agnieszka Kowalik. The nature recordings were recorded by Violetta Kaminska. This episode was edited by Matt Van Rice. This episode was produced by Violetta Kaminska and Matt Van Rice. This has been a Plaid Production.